0: I love dogs. I love dogs too. Glad we're all on the same page. Five, four, three, two, one. Welcome to the Sarah Draco Show.
1: I'm super excited to be talking about intention when it comes to dog bites. I think there's a lot of misconception about aggression, what aggression is. I feel like that's a label that gets misused all the time. Oh, and yeah. then also when it comes to bites, I think some people underplay bites and I think people overplay bites so some of the things I want to dive into today with you is talking about intent behind bites like the severity of them what it means and from a behavior perspective what we're going to do about it based on what we think the intent is or what the purpose is behind it so uh Jim um you've got a lot of experience on this um and veterinary forensics is just one of those fields that is incredibly fascinating to me I could puppy dog around and shadow after you for months at a time and never get bored. It's a cool subject and um, I'm really excited that you can pull in information um, about all of these different types of bites and how dogs bite so that we can use that information to prevent dog bites in the future from a behavior perspective. Um, one of the things I always like to say is, is that the dead still tell tales, the dead still talks. So, yes. um, you know, you do a lot with fatality, uh, fatalities, when it comes to dog bites and dog attacks. So you've been able to take a lot of the information even post-mortem to teach us about what we can do um, in other cases down the road from a behavior perspective with um, with some of this information. So mm-hmm. thanks so much for joining me today.
0: Hey, I'm glad to be here. And you know, bites is, over the years it's kind of become my thing. I did my masters at the university of Florida, uh, veterinary forensics program, which is through the vet school in, um, you know, in veterinary forensics. But my thesis was on the procedures and evidentiary needs of actually how to investigate serious and fatal dog attacks. Because unfortunately, I mean, I'm a retired police officer. And unfortunately for many, many years, what happened is if somebody got killed at worst. The police would walk in, they'd shoot the dog, they'd load up the body and everybody went home. And that's all the information we had. And I guess around the time of the Diane Whipple attack in San Francisco, uh, I'd gone into behavior and training and um, the old cop in me surfaced because I was fortunate. I got hired very young, so I was able to retire uh in my early 40s and um i started looking at it wondering I, the human dog relationship is such where we kill them off all the time but how does that relationship go that's because we're jerks but <laughs> yeah how does that relationship go so bad that they wind up killing us and there had been some people who had looked at it academically, people who are now friends of mine, like Dr. Randy Lockwood, who's now retiring at the ASPCA and, um, Dr. Jeff Sachs, who was with CDC. Uh, they wrote the, the the initial big papers here in the U S back in the late nineties about breed and bites and attacks and stuff. But I started looking at it with the combination of, behavioral person and a cop and looking at the relationship of what i could find from the evidence and that has led me down this kind of strange path where now i'm actually finishing my phd at the vet school and my my dissertation and research is on um specifically fatal but fatal and serious dog bites and dog bites overall and the behavioral mechanisms behind the, uh, why they're biting, how they wind up getting so sideways that a human gets seriously injured. And also as you're putting it intent or purpose of a bite and upfront, I like to you, we, it's easy to use the word intent when we're talking about something our dogs do, because We understand that they are sentient companion animals that are working with us and have emotions across a huge range and all of that. I like to use the word purpose of a bite because intent to me kind of has some human baggage that we, our dogs may or may not deserve. Um, for instance, I don't believe dogs are mean. Or evil, or je- some of the human emotions like jealousy seem to have analogs within the dog behavior world. Uh, friends of mine, such as Dan- uh, Dr. Daniel Mills over at the University of Lincoln in England, is looking heavily into the emotions. People like uh, Brian Hare and um, Clive Wynne are looking into the emotional backgrounds, but. I don't like to put that human baggage on the dogs if we don't have to. So instead of saying, Oh, that it's useless to say, well, the dog bit so-and-so because he's mean. No, the dog (laughs) bit so-and-so because the dog felt that under those circumstances, a bite was an appropriate and reasonable way to act in that situation. A bite, isn't necessary i mean we don't like it but it being bitten means that somehow the dog saw that as a reasonable and appropriate behavior under the circumstances it's simply a way aggression is simply a one of the ways for dogs to affect their environment Uh, there's Aggression is not a single thing. It's a whole cluster of behaviors. Um, and again, it's completely divorced from being mean or or any of the things that we like to heap on them. It's an adaptive behavior, a behavior that helps the organism, whether it's a dog or a lizard or an amoeba, um, survive. I, I was interested recently to find out that corals that live underwater and so forth and anemones display aggressive behaviors they secrete chemicals that drive other competing organisms away from them so they can maximize resources who thought a reef of coral could be aggressive <laughs>
1: that's a that's a miniature army right there <laughs> it's
0: Absolutely. a colony of life yeah yeah, well, I mean,
1: I, go ahead. You know,
0: who, who thought an anemone, a sea anemone, you know, a little with the tentacles and everything? Yeah. Who thought that that was aggressive? But aggressive behavior is behavior with a purpose.
1: And there's so many different types or so many different definitions of aggression it's one of those things that I, I love to ask almost every behavior consultant that i come into contact with what's your definition of aggression because it really does change and i think the word purpose is really important i like that you i like that you use that term rather than intent because A lot of times when we think about aggressive behaviors or bites in particular, you know, a bite is aggressing forward at something um, through most definitions, through a lot of definitions, and it's really about eliminating a threat. Uh, and, And I think oftentimes that's where some of the struggle is because what we see as not a threat, it's not a threatening thing. So why would this animal bite in this situation? Because we don't feel that it's a threat. We forget that the dog sees it as a threat and what the dog sees and how the dog feels is what matters in that moment as to how they're going to respond not how we feel about the situation you know the wind can blow sideways and a dog that had no socialization and, and terrible things happened during their critical fear period is now thinking that that's a threat and it's something worth biting over whereas we look at it and we're like nothing's going on what's wrong so i think a lot of miscommunication with some of these bites being landed often comes from people not understanding what the dog perceives as a threat and how to eliminate that threat appropriately.
0: hmm. I, I absolutely agree. And we have to remember that dogs do not necessarily see, the, like you said, the same things that we see as threats. Um, and we have to try to see their perception. Uh, as best we can because ultimately dogs, we love them. They're great, but they're little aliens that have been generous enough to live socially and physically with us for 35, 40,000 years. And, um, but they don't see or hear or understand the world quite the same as we do. So what a dog perceives as a threat When, when I look into a bite investigation, it doesn't matter whether that's a, what we would consider a valid threat. Um, so, because for instance, it happens all the time where children get bitten in the face. Mm -hmm. There's dog size. The dogs are there. So people get upset and they go, Oh, little Susie got bitten in the face. This must be a horrible dog. But if we put ourselves in the dog's position, what did they see when Susie came up? Well, what they saw was a small being that had wide eyes that were focused straight on them. Mm -hmm. They had their teeth showing, Mm -hmm. they put out their arms and made themselves larger. And then they directly approached in a straight line making noises and grab the dog around the neck. Well, all of those are dog body language signals of a potential threat from a conspecific. They haven't, that dog may not have been around children and may not realize this kid does not mean, or does not intend or have the purpose of being a threat. Instead, little Susie is not being watched properly by their parents and Mm -hmm. Susie winds up getting a bite. So there's a bite and you look at it and sure it looks terrible, but the dog has one time engaged with limited, moderated and controlled force at the closest thing to their face in order to gain space. They don't have thumbs, so they can't push you away. Um, And so yeah, perceiving threats is a huge part of trying to analyze why a dog bit and how the dog may have perceived, um, that action as a threat or an invasion of its personal space. So to me, aggression has been defined, as you say, by a lot of people as uh, behavior intended to do harm. And I think that we're deficient when we look at defining aggression as intending, or even have the purpose of harm. Aggression is a, the, the cluster of behaviors that we call aggression has a couple of purposes. Number one, it's commonly used to gain space, whether it's from a conspecific, or whether it's from a perceived threat, but it's used to gain space. It's pri- it's another primary use is to gain access to or protect resources. And your yard is a resource. The food bowl is a resource. Reproductive access is a resource. Um, you you as a person and your companionship and relationship with that dog is a resource so some of its protection of resource i know there are books and people out there who break aggression into all these different categories in maternal and maternal and territorial and this bottom line is get space protect resources or protect themselves from perceived harm and if we look at those clusters um we can see those purposes for instance two dogs uh, bow up over a social dispute or access to resources if every time two dogs had an argument they got in a fight and they wound up injuring or killing one or both of them the species wouldn't have lasted very long instead they have the complex group of behaviors, signaling behaviors that sometimes we pay attention to and sometimes we don't, but that has the conversation going back and forth so that even if there's a, even if it goes from signaling to a fight, dispute fights between two dogs typically do very little damage. And it's a question of the dogs using that contact to decide, who is more committed to the outcome here and who is willing to use that ritual combat to seed um, territory or resources to the other one without getting seriously hurt. Um, so, you know, aggression doesn't mean causing harm there. It, it There's a lot of it that's involved in posture and movement, Um, not as much vocalization as we do, because we don't shut up, but um, if we understand aggression as a way of securing basic purposes, suddenly some of these instances start making a lot more sense. In in my PhD work right now, and in my dissertation, I'm looking at how these serious attacks happen. And I've been able to break them down based on the behavior plus the physical evidence gathered from being at the autopsies and looking at the injuries and analyzing where and how, and how often and how, how hard the dogs bit and what the purpose of those bites were. I've been able to basically break, fatal dog attacks and serious dog attacks into a couple of groups. We have the accidental cases where a dog does something that in a dog's mind that makes normal sense and is not a a real threat addressing. The dog is grumpy. You're, you're, You're walking along and you reach over to pet him and he's got an ear infection you don't know about. You pet him on the ear and he, and he turns around and it's a quick snap that if some, there have been people who died, usually children from that kind of thing, but the dog, there's no purpose in actually destroying the target. The dog is expressing pain or just trying like from Susie, getting a little bit of room. Um, now in one of the cases I worked, that single snap resulted in a single canine tooth piercing the carotid and jugular uh, vessels on the child's neck and the child bled to death. Was that a calculated attack? Not really. That's more of a, I'm calling them accidental. Then you have defensive, um, or, or what I call, I, th- I think what I'm calling human, I'm sorry, I'm calling dog mediated attacks where the dog is perceived a threat or the dog is, is getting space and is exercising um, the, the bite behavior to achieve that purpose and the threat keeps coming and the dog responds to that. And then there are a group that I'm calling human, uh, mediated factors where a person has either deliberately or unintentionally created behaviors that have encouraged or reinforced a violent response from the dog. Whether it's somebody teaching a dog to be a guard dog or whether, um, And the one I love is you've got, and and I hate to pick on old people because I'm getting there, but you've got the little old lady with the little Marf Marf dog in her arms and the little lasso whatever is. (laughs) And she's, oh, that's okay, Fluffy. Fluffy (laughs) won't bite you. No, Fluffy's going to bite the crap out of you in just a (laughs) minute because she has reinforced that behavior. Yes. And then another class that we have is cases I've worked on where actually dogs are either being used as weapons and that does happen, or I've had several cases where dogs are being used to conceal human crimes. Uh, for instance, a child, um, victim of sexual abuse is then thrown into an area where a chained up unsocialized, dog is and the dog winds up biting the child and people blow it off as a dog attack mm. or, um, Oh, terrible. Uh, a situation that I worked and actually flew to the scene where the victim was actually killed by another person. But then the dogs were encouraged to engage with the dying and then dead person in order to inflict massive injuries to cover the human crime
1: to make it look like it was the dogs that killed the person. Right.
0: And, you know, fortunately in that case, the, the investigators involved said, we've never done one of these before. So let's call Jim and (laughs) I flew out and, um, assisted them with it and yeah, we can prove it was a murder. Um, that the dogs were secondary. Um, one of the good things was that, um, after some work and some evaluation, uh, the dogs involved were not just destroyed, um, offhand. Instead, uh, they went into some rehabilitation and were placed.
2: Oh, excellent! Um,
0: because the dog's behavior was caused by a human and, uh, without actually setting them up for that the dogs never would have been involved
1: so looking at some of these different cases and some of these reasons that these attacks are happening what are some of the um and everybody has their own different kind of bite scale i I like to use the blend that ian dunbar and sophia yin kind of put together um but kind of can you go into detail a little bit about what some of these bites mean like what they look like whether post-mortem or prior to whenever you're investigating some of these cases and what each of these bites kind of mean to you?
0: Uh, well I've been I, like you, I've been using the Dunbar scale for a very long time um, and, and learned about it from Ian years ago. Um, we currently have a working we currently have a working group that is trying to expand, and, uh, and wrap in some, some, some more data into the scale. But basically the way I break it down is, um, how hard did the dog bite? How hard did the dog have to work to get to biting? Um, how long did the dog engage and how many times? So we're looking at with the, Things that we can quantifiably assess using the Dunbar scale or Sophia Yin scale as a base. So, for instance, the, 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 the levels one and two, there's no contact there. That's behavior and threatening and menacing, um, which we should be understanding as clear message that the dog doesn't like something or the dog wants space, or the dog, that's communication.
1: Uh, yes, I was just gonna point that out. You said that once, and I can't remember if it's the Lemonade Conference or the Aggression and Dogs Conference, but you said communication, and a bite is communication. So I love that you just brought that up because what is this dog trying to communicate based on the action that it's taking?
0: Right, and, and, and the thing that i found is that if the dog has to communicate using a bite, except in extremely, extremely rare situations. The dog has already tried to communicate more than a little bit in its mind before it used its teeth. That's, that's a way of a dog raising its voice going, Hey, you're not listening. I've put my body, I've looked, I've cut my eyes, I've showed tension, I've given all these signals and you're not listening. And, you're still scaring me or you're still not responding to what's going on here. But for instance, we go to, um, the initial level three bite. That's a single bite. Okay. Single bite is pretty much communication. Single bite is saying, Hey, back off. And with, with, uh, the Dunbar scale, it's a bite that has one to four holes half the length of a canine tooth. Why does that make sense? Well, the canines stick out above the other teeth. And a typical dog has a canine tooth that's about twice or more the length of the incisors. They have four canines, and they have six incisors top and bottom. So that means that that is a moderated and controlled contact where the dog the, people don't realize canine teeth are not only used for tearing and, and grabbing, but they're also sensory organs. They're, they're kind of like, I don't know about yours, but my, my grandparents when I was growing up had these little, um, spring things that stuck out from the, the passenger side of the car so that when they pulled up next to a curb, before they scraped the car on the curb, these spring things would would contact the curb and make a noise, and they they, they were called curb feelers. And um, in some ways, canine teeth, because they're longer and they're the first to contact, are some are, are like curb feelers for dogs. It lets them know that they've contacted something, and they can moderate. That's why puppy. Uh, puppies learning bite inhibition which is a huge thing on from dr dunbar's training and lots of other people is is tremendous they have to learn to moderate that but so so a level three bite you've got one to four holes um which means just the canines so limited contact of teeth and only half the depth of a canine tooth i mean we can try and We, we can try and parse it out more specifically, but it's really hard. Uh, whether it's live tissue or dead tissue, uh, getting beyond that halfway point, as far as defining a third or two thirds or whatever is almost impossible because the, there's, um, you know, with a, with a live victim, you have edema swelling, the, the the changes in the skin due to the body trying to respond to that, that insult to the skin and tissues on a deceased person. Even if they die right afterwards, you still have issues with skin being a plastic and malleable, um, surface and how much muscle and fat is it backed by the way I use as, as a, as a simple, way to gauge is if I've just got the, the, the holes, then that's, um, a level three. I look for the impression or pressure from the incisors to tell me whether it was more than half because the incisors again tend to be about half the length. So that that's sense. when we start. Yeah. It's, it's easier than trying to, again, even in an autopsy sitting there with the medical examiner and putting a probe down inside a bite wound, and then trying to measure that and compare it because there's so many things that can happen, um, with skin, especially if somebody isn't killed immediately. You you've got what's called the vital reaction, which is how you tell if someone was bitten while they were alive, or if those bites are post-mortem. Um, so, Looking at that, so the number of holes and the depth of the holes is a real easy way to look at low-level bites. When you get up further, okay, how many times did the dog bite the person? Were those bites all low-level? Well, if there's a couple of bites and they're all um, low-level, Dr. Dunbar's added uh, the 3 B which basically means the dog is trying to communicate. He's still holding himself back, but you really aren't listening. Uh, Mm. You're not addressing the problem. Once you get up to the level fours where they're grabbing, then you have the question of grab and pressure injuries of shaking and pulling. And um, that the purpose of that bite is typically very different from the purpose of a single engage and release. If the dog's grabbing onto you and shaking and pulling, its purpose is not just to drive you away. There's something else going on there that we need to look at. By the time you get to a five, you have multiple serious bites where you have pressure and slashing and tearing, and you have, avulsion or, this, or the removal of tissue. And that's a, that's a truly dangerous situation. And in some cases now, the only difference between that and a fatality is where you are and what your community resources for medical care are. You know, if you, you live in a place in, that uh, has a rescue squad that can get to you quickly and somebody sees you, then you may well survive a rather a very serious attack. If you're out in the country and something like that happens to you, um, you're, you're at great risk for, for, for death from that kind of attack. And since those are a different purpose, those tend to be very rare. Those are more predatory. Um, dogs are, omnivores, but they do have and show what's called the predatory motor sequence. And that's something that we all see in all of our dogs. That's the, it starts with the eye when that dog's looking and sees a target. Then there's a stalk where the dog creeps up. What is that? Border Collie. Eye Yes. And stalk.
2: <laughs> that's right.
0: And then there is a chase still border collie, um, or any other dog, but especially herding dogs, but we've bred them to stop there because the next step is typically a disabling bite. And then there is a kill bite. And that kill bite is usually that grab hold, shake and tear with a small animal that is designed so that the dog if it's uh, going after prey picks up the small animal shakes it breaks the neck and then carries it back home with a larger animal they go in and the idea is to disable that animal as quickly as possible but then to attack in such a way often to the abdomen so that you know if you're a wild canid of whatever kind there's probably also something in the neighborhood that's bigger than ba- and better than you bears ah, or whatever <laughs> lions, yeah. tigers, bears, whatever. So if you go for the high value, high caloric internal organs first, you get the good parts for survival and then you can leave it, the chicken wings for everybody else. Um, and then canids and our dogs too, um will dissect and they will also carry stuff back to uh their den uh you know they pick they my guys pick up their toys and carry them back into their crates and chew on them and all that all the time that's Mm -hmm. part of that behavior sequence but when that behavior sequence becomes closer to its full fulfillment that's when we start getting really dangerous stuff happening.
1: And where do you see that line between that semi-inhibited or inhibited bite and that completely disinhibited bite where you go from controlled to uncontrolled?
0: Um, That's where the basic criteria that I look at come together. How hard did the the, the dog bite? How hard and, and how much did the dog have to do to to work to how, how much did it persevere? How much did it have to work at in order to make that bite happen the way it did? How many times did the dog bite? Um, those, you know, basically, um, force frequency and, um, persistence, you know, how did this dog bite once and back up or did it chew its way through the door? and then come after the target. What was the dri- How much driving force was there to inflict the bite? Again, a quick, a quick bite to somebody walking by maybe may mean, okay, it's, it's shallow. It's a single bite. So it's inhibited. It's controlled because the dog just nails the closest target to it. That's communication. That's a dog trying to get space, but the dog that, has to work much harder whether it's going through a barrier whether it's chasing somebody down um and pursuing and then engaging on multiple you know multiple bites that steps the severity of it up um i worked a case on a fatality in another country where the um, victim was killed by her own dog A visitor came in, the dog went off and targeted the visitor. The owner of the dog told the visitor to go hide, literally in the laundry room. The dog was so motivated that it actually bit chunks in the door of the laundry room where the the guest was hiding. Um, But the level of arousal and frustration became so high that the dog turned and had to direct that somewhere. The owner was physically unable to totally control him and the dog wound up taking the owner out. Well, that, you know, right off that sound and it was really bad and really tragic, but that's where investigation comes in because what I was able to find out was this same dog, same house, same victim, there were drugs involved at the house twice before bad guys had invaded the home armed and assaulted Mm. and gone after the owner. And both times the dog placed itself between the bad guys and the, the resident there, his owner, in one case, um, bit and chased the, uh, the, the bad guy's out despite the fact that its ear got blown off by a shotgun blast. Oh, In wow. the other case, the bad guy's retreated and the dog went out through the front window and um, turned the uh, primary bad guy into a really nasty pile of, uh, uh, of uh, damaged flesh outside. So the background of that dog told us a lot about... Why the dog did what it did. It had been encouraged to be protective and human aggressive, and it had a history of having to defend the owner. So, in that case, its purpose was defensive. Um, it went too far, uh, and it chose somebody who wasn't a valid threat, but to the dog, he perceived that visitor as a threat. It was somebody who hadn't been there before. It was an odd time of day and the circumstances were, were not normal. So, you know, the, the escalation uh, of, or put it this way, when you get a really serious case, once we dig into it, we tend to find that there are lower level cases that preceded that, that Mm
2: -hmm. again,
0: in the dog's mind, that behavior fulfilled the purpose that the dog was looking at achieving in those lower level cases. Not all dogs escalate, but then not everybody, for instance, that um, is mean as a child and pulls a cat's tail winds up graduating to be a serial killer. Right. But some of them do.
1: That's true. Well, and I'd love to hear a little bit more about some of the whys. So from a behavior perspective, in a lot of these different cases that you've, you've seen and been a part of, what are some of those reasons that you've come across leading up to these events As the, from the dog's perspective, per se, as much as we can try to think from a dog's perspective, um, have been some of those whys? What are the reasons that these things are happening from your experience?
0: Some of them wind up being um, defensive incidences where it goes beyond what normal a, a, what we would normally usually call a normal response would be, you know, um, to go back to the ritual combat between dogs. Usually what happens is one dog gets to the point where it decides that the ultimate purpose is not worth getting hurt or getting killed. So it retreats, Um, in defensive situations, You know, you push, I don't care whether it's a dog or a bunny rabbit into a corner and threaten it, it may well decide to defend itself. Most of the time, defense involves doing just enough damage to basically open the exit door and find a place to run away. That goes back to the old fight, flee or freeze uh, response to danger. An animal can freeze like a bunny rabbit in the, in the middle of the highway. Well, that presumes that the animal hasn't been seen and that animal is trying to blend in and not be seen. Once it's been seen, it has two choices, fight or flee. Animals for survival will typically choose to run away, run away and live to fight another day. Usually a fight involves one of the two animals either giving up and saying, I'm done or getting enough of a, um, enough space to run away and disengage and go home and lick its wounds. I do believe and have seen that there are some dogs out there. And, um, I don't believe that it's restricted to a single breed that, for whatever reason in their brain they don't seem to have that disengagement switch they get so aroused and um what uh dr mills and several of your other researchers uh go back to um calling frustration they become so aroused and focused on a particular goal that they don't de-escalate as um The threat abates, but they continue. And so, um, you know, that escalates the situation into a much, much more, more serious thing. But, you know, for most cases, defensive behavior, once the dog is able to either drive back or find a way to run away, that usually stops it. But some dogs, again, don't seem to don't seem to recognize that or don't have that ability. And there's speculation that that that's actually a neurotransmitter deficit. Um, if it's, if it's not trained like somebody who's got a Schutzen dog or a police or military dog that, uh, has been taught to keep going as long as it's commanded to, um, it seems that there may be a neurotransmitter deficit in one of in the basically the off circuit in the canine brain. So um yeah that defensive defensive issues like that come up. Now there are some that I've seen that are predatory where the animals sometimes due to nutritional issues and sometimes not actually go through the the predatory sequence. And as an example, I had a case where uh, an older gentleman went out to check his mail and there were a pair of dogs, uh, large dogs that were allowed by their owners to roam the neighborhood. Um, Apparently they were not appropriately fed because on necropsy of both of the dogs, we found scavenged garbage from, from discarded food from people's garbage cans that they'd been into. But this gentleman was out getting his mail. The dogs came around and targeted him. They took him to the ground. He tried to fight them off. He dra- they dragged him 70 or 80 feet up a hill into their yard. And when his um, wife drove up, the attack was still ongoing and they had eaten him from the knees down. Oh, wow. Um, And he, unfortunately, he lived that long where he expired just after she got there. Um, Again, on necropsy, we found a couple of kilograms of, of leg tissue in both of the dog's stomachs. So that was a predatory attack. And those dogs had been allowed to roam. Uh, had never been controlled. And again, we found also in, in their stomach, we found, um, a full package of hot, uh, raw hot dogs that had been chomped down just like in one or two bites. Wow. And we found, um, leavings of, of steak from somebody's dinner and some other, um, detritus from garbage cans. So those dogs were, operating at least partially under, uh, nutritional constraints. Uh, in that case there was more going on because we also, when we, uh, when I went with the investigators to the home where the dogs came from, we found 35 other dogs kept in undersized crates hidden in the backyard.
1: Oh my. Yeah.
0: So this was, it was a, a fatal dog attack, but the people were also, hoarding and breeding dogs and keeping them in highly substandard conditions. So, uh, like my friend and and basically mentor, uh, Randy Lockwood, uh, said once a long time ago in regard to the, um, the Diane Whipple case, um, it was, and, and the phrase has been overused since, but it's a perfect storm really of characteristics that come together. When something that massive happens and you know, uh, I, I had a child, similar situation, went by a, a home, was walking home. One of the dogs in the yard that were not contained spooked him. He ran, which was a bad oh. idea. Yeah. The dogs took him down, dragged him into the yard and then consumed a significant portion of his body and um there was a nutritional um component to that um as far as the dog's physical condition and there were six of them and um there there were some some other neglect factors that involved that we were able to put together a picture um both from from the dogs and the wounds and also going out and they held the crime scene and I was actually able to find the in the road in front of the house where the child's footprints went from walking footprints to running footprints, to scuffing in the dirt and bloodstains and the drag marks back to where the body was recovered. So we were able to use the physical evidence to put together a really good picture of what happened. And we sent the, the owner to prison.
1: Good. And this is where I, it always comes to mind. I mean, I've, I've been working with pit bull type dogs and rescues and dog fight dogs for a very, very long time. And so anytime someone says to me, oh, this is horrible. These dogs are terrible. It always stems back to the humans, how the humans are involved, the irresponsibility factor on the side of the human owners, because ultimately we've created these dependents and when we're not fulfilling their needs we're creating these perfect storms as you say we're the ones that are driving these very very dangerous behaviors and i think that's often very difficult for people to separate they immediately blame the dogs the dogs Mm -hmm. are vicious the dogs are monsters the dogs are just innately terrible Um, think about what happens the step prior to these dog attacks to these fatal attacks in particular Mm -hmm. it is always human driven it's such a very odd Um, rarity to have an animal that's so genetically off that they just want to run out and kill things like it just doesn't happen like that
0: and and I would liken it to humans we within humans I mean and I think our percentage wise we're probably way higher than dogs but we do have our Jeffrey Dahmers and Ted Bundy's and this moron that shot up uh, the 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 grocery store in Aurora Colorado and uh, you know people that are are so improperly wired that they do horrible things. And I've seen a couple of dogs out of all the thousands of dogs, a couple of them that were just psych, basically psycho.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, how did they get there? Uh, in the, the, the couple of cases there have been iffy welfare issues, but there's also had to have been something else. And we don't necessarily know because we don't always have a history, but, That's one of the things that I find valuable and interesting in investigating these is, okay, we've got an incident, but how did we get here? Why did this incident happen? To begin with, I want to know, okay, this happened right now. What happened five seconds before the bite? What happened 10 seconds? What happened 30 seconds? What happened an hour before? What happened a week before? What has been the, the additive factors that have come together? You know, has this been a behavior that's been tolerated or encouraged? Has this been a behavior that's been successful in the past? And today it, uh, went further than it had in the past, you know, and whether that's with, um, you know, fatal or serious bites, or just simply a regular biting dog. Um, in, in rehabbing, um, I had a, uh, I have, uh, some Kevlar protective gear and a young dog about eight months old that a client had, um, had learned when they called me, they said they'd been working on it. The dog was only biting them about eight times a day. <laughs> um, and the, the, but the dog had learned that this behavior made it possible for them to manipulate their environment Mm -hmm. and they got what they wanted. Yep. So I threw my Kevlar pants on and took the dog on the leash and the, and wearing the the protective gear and the boots stood there and the dog goes and and bit and bit and bit and bit. And I just stood there. And finally the dogs and looks up and nothing's happening. And huh? <laughs> and it's like, okay, are you done?
2: Sit. <laughs> That's
0: right. Dog plops down. Dog gets cookie.
2: <gasps> oh my
0: God. I've been doing this wrong the whole time. You know, it wasn't a magic fix, but by starting the intervention, by being able to safely have the dog be unsuccessful in what it wanted, and then being able to replace that misplaced behavior with something um, that got the dog more of what it wanted, we were able to start the dog down the path towards um, rehabilitation and understanding the difference. Was that a mean dog? No, just somewhere early in its life, it had learned that this was a successful behavior.
2: This works. And
0: so was the dog dangerous in its current state? Yeah. Had it been exposed to people that were not prepared for that or young kids, it could have done a lot of damage. But was it really a dog that, that needed to be destroyed because it was um, un- unredeemable? In that case, no. You know, it doesn't always work out that way. But like yourself i've worked with um quite a number of fighting dogs and for instance we had the 21 dogs that came out of ontario a few years back Uh, those were my dogs and uh, we got them out of ontario put them in rehab and of those 21 there were two that i refused to take six of them are now working in law enforcement as detector dogs two of them are bonafide uh service dogs I love it. and other than one, one dog wound up in permanent sanctuary, one dog wound up having medical conditions and the rest of them have been successfully placed and living in family situations after rehab for, um, two years now.
1: Excellent. Yeah.
0: So we have to, you know, even reinforced dog dog, combative violent behavior like fighting dogs who have been typically abused to encourage them to be as violent as possible towards other dogs, even, even that aggression can um, sometimes be, be moderated and controlled or, or um, replaced with more acceptable and safer behavior.
1: Well, the one thing I always love to talk to people about, uh, especially when it comes to dogs that are potentially aggressive towards other dogs, is that it doesn't have any bearing on whether they'll be aggressive towards people at all. And Mm -hmm. we're so used to the human way where if you're a human and you're aggressive to another species, you're likely to be aggressive to the same species or or any species, really. Whereas in the dog world, those things can be very independent of one another and very separate from one another.
0: Yeah. Well, look look at fighting dogs professional level fighting dogs Mm -hmm. in a, in a, and I hate to use the word professional, but you know (laughs) what I mean. I know exactly Um, what you mean. (laughs) In a formal dog fight, you've got uh, a 16 foot square plywood enclosed area where the two dogs are put at each other from opposite corners. In that space, you have three human beings. Yes. You have one handler for each of the dogs and you have a judge. Yep. You know, now, dog fighting judge is not something I've ever aspired to be, but (laughs) you put the two dogs together and they're extremely violent. But if either of those dogs redirects to a human target, being the handlers or the judge, typically they're shot on the spot Yep. because even those horrible, nasty people who are using these dogs for blood sport and, and maiming and killing each other. They don't want to get bitten Mm -mm. so they're selecting dogs that are very reactive to conspecifics to other dogs but are not human aggressive so you know one does not necessarily mean the other
1: now it's interesting we bring that part up about too with with dog fighters not tolerating a redirect or displacement of aggression Where's your line? I mean, what it, it, you, I'm sure you've probably been in this position before, too, as far as consulting um, what to do with a situation where you have a dog that doesn't uh, disengage, that has that really high arousal level to where they're fine 95% of the time, but that's that 5% if you get too close to that ball or you know something triggers the dog, that they have a very difficult time de-escalating. Where's kind of your line with that?
0: It's, it's got to go case by case. A lot of it depends on the conditions and the responsibility of the people that are involved in managing and controlling that animal and also how severe it is. Is this a dog that we can, for instance, intervene and teach to release um, on command so that we can put in that safety uh, that safety, uh, switch there, uh, or is this a dog that is too focused and that we have to remember that, you know, whether it's a shelter or individuals, we all have different levels of resources and, um, knowledge and abilities. So for instance, if these, these, the dogs from Canada got lucky, they wound up being, uh, overseen by someone who, had a lot of money and resources to throw at them. We were able to do extensive rehabilitation and we were able to very, very particularly and specifically choose where those dogs went understanding that, okay, even though everything is going perfectly, you always have to keep in the back of your mind that there could be an accident something could happen. So they have to be managed. Um, so, you know, placing dogs that have that high of dog, dog drive can be really iffy and there's lots of places and I don't hold it against them. They don't have the resources to do that. So the safest thing for the public, and we have to keep that in our sights, is that this dog may not be a um, appropriate for ever being placed. Uh, it just may not work out. The dog doesn't have the skills or the, the, the ability to do that. And we don't have the resources. Some dogs sadly have been broken by people and we, we can't just fix them. Other times we've got lower levels of issues or we happen to have resources. Um, but it's an excellent point. I have I've had a case where, um, like so many of them, child was unsupervised, but this particular dog was chained. Okay, two warnings here: unsupervised child, <laughs> and chained chain. dog. Yes, that had a favorite ball and toy, and most of the time, the adults in the household yeah. supervised the child and the dog together. And they let the child throw the ball for the dog. And the dog just loved it and was very, very excitable and very focused on that toy until the day that due to some problems within a household, the two year old child got outside by himself and wound up wandering within the area. The dog was chained with the toy probably in his hand or up by his face the dog um went after the toy we know he went after the toy the toy the ball was torn up part of it was in his stomach we recovered it on necropsy um and we know the dog was highly focused on that but that's one of those horrible accidents where the dog based on the the injuries and evidence and so forth, the dog probably went after the ball and connected with the child at the same time. Yeah. And once the ball's involved and the child's involved and everything is, is going sideways at the same time, the child wound up losing his life. Um, So yeah, the, you know, that kind of focus we have to be careful with. And you know, that kind of uh, and, and again, if it's, if it's dog-dog focus, we've got to be really careful that that's not somebody who's going to take their, and again, regardless of breed, going to take their big dog out that's got horrible dog-dog focus like that and walk them on a flexi leash. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because when they see the neighbor's little white fluffy marf-marf coming by, that's a disaster just waiting to happen. And, you know, so many people, either they don't pay attention, or they uh, drop something, or in a case of a flexi-leash, the mechanical device Snaps. fails, which yep. they do. Um, I mean, you know, then what have you got? You've got a plastic handle with a dog on a shoestring that's 10 meters long. Mm. Um, that's not control. Here in Jacksonville, Florida, for instance, if a dog does something, and bite somebody, and it's on a flexi leash. Uh, our animal control prosecuted as a dog running at large. Mm. We don't we recognize flexi leash.
1: We need that up yeah. here. We don't recognize
0: North. a flexi as being under control. No, because I agree one hundred
1: percent. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this too. So, for people that end up, I want—I want, I would like to just briefly touch because I don't want to take your entire day up, but um, briefly touch on both de-escalation and prevention. So you know there's a lot of information about preventing dog bites um, but as far as de-escalation goes what happens when your rescuer your foster your pet parent your trainer finds themselves in a position with a dog that is not coming down well that has that high arousal this could potentially be a dangerous situation What's your best bet? If the human is saying I'm done and I'm not fighting, you know, um one of the things that I always talk to owners about is don't scream. You know, it's one of the worst things you can do. Right. Stop screaming, don't run. And don't
0: run. Don't
1: run. Um, <laughs> but what are some other de-escalating tricks that you might have based on some of the things that you've seen in your experience?
0: Well, we can we can look at the same things the dogs do to de-escalate conflict between themselves. For instance, two dogs facing each other frontally is a challenge. So, uh, for instance, I I authored what's now approved by the department of justice as the nationwide course for police encounters with dogs and calls so they can stop shooting them. And I teach them, turn your body to an angle because an angled body posture tells the dog, I don't want to, I don't want to tangle with you. Watch dog, dog conflicts and slow them down on video. And you can see a lot of this or look up, for instance, the, um, the body language, uh, explanations that, uh, for instance, uh, Roger Brontes has written in his books over the years, or look at the calming signals that toured rugas. Um, and I can never remember if she's in Sweden or Norway, but the book is calming signals on talking terms with dogs. Look at the body language. Um, You know, I I teach the officers, if the dog is coming out and you're going to have to, you know, you can't simply close the gate, turn your body to the side. Don't look the dog in the eye. Smile, but don't show your teeth. So you soften your face. Pick up the cues that the dog understands to tell the dog, I'm not a threat. I don't want to engage. The dog is probably reacting to something that you did that it perceives as either a threat or impinging upon its space or whatever. So use the dog's own body language. I I tell people I can speak dog with an accent because I can't (laughs) move my ears real well and my tail we don't want to talk about. (laughs) Um, But use those body postures. If the dog comes, <clears throat> dog comes for you and is charging you. <clears throat> typically, it wants to. It's trying to say, you know, you're somewhere you don't belong. So you can move your body posture. You can look away. You can stop advancing, and you can send a message to the dog that you want to de-escalate the, situ- the situation. Um, it feels silly the first time you do it. But you can actually turn your head and yawn. Mm-hmm. That is a signal that a dog recognizes as a de escalation signal. You can sit there and, with mustache, it's harder, but you can <laughs>
2: lick, lick lip. your
0: lips. Again, we feel silly, but it's using those kind of signals that has allowed me to go into secure kennels and whatever and actually get my hands on and build at least a short-term relationship of trust with about 60 dogs that have killed human beings after they did so. These are dogs I know are fully capable of ripping somebody's throat out because I've got the pictures. Right. And I'm there to try to figure out... I'm not there to try to figure out if this dog can be placed. I tell people, I'm not here to save the dog. I'm here to figure out what happened. Right. And is there a human... Uh, component, mostly. And can we hold somebody responsible for this because somebody lost their life? You know, how can we, what can we put together to hold anybody that's responsible, responsible, but also to learn from it so we can tell people what not to do. And what not to do is, it wasn't a fatal, but I had a, Uh, a legal case where guy goes to a party, the dogs on the other side on a leash with its owner starts barking at him. He goes, Oh dude, I'm like a dog whisperer. And he walks across the backyard, approaches the dog, even though the dog is barking and warning, even though the owner is saying, yo, you probably don't want to say hello to the dog, reaches over, grabs the dog by the (laughs) side of the face and puts his face in the dog's nose because that's what dog whispers do, man. And of course the dog proceeded to take off a large part of his nose. <laughs> Single bite, fully understandable. And as far as I'm concerned, the victim bought and paid for that one. Yeah. The dog tried communicating, but in a case where we've got something that's already going sideways, de-escalate, make yourself less threatening understand the dog's communication and look for those. I mean, I've had dogs where, you know, they're on one side of the fence and they're going crazy, trying to eat me and I'm moving my body and looking away and, and it's, it's such a rush when the dog is acting like a fool and I'm either holding my position or I may even turn my, you know, in that case, because there's a barrier, turn my back on the dog, Mm -hmm. but once the communication, the conversation starts, the dog is tense and they're tight and they're looking at me with the hard eyes. And I see that first, just that diversion of the eyes, five degrees and a lick, I'm starting to communicate. And I can return similar signals and it's such a rush to watch the level of arousal drop and that trust start to come up. You know, I'm not going to take this dog home, but I can use body language and positioning to communicate in dog with the dog coupled with, you know, not showing body tension, not yelling, keeping my voice down. A lot of things where we go from confrontation to negotiation is the, is the way I put it.
1: It's a great way to put it. Yeah.
0: If we learn dog language and if we learn to see the warning signs before it becomes critical, then it's very possible we can negotiate with the dog. Because negotiation is, is two big things. Number one, negotiation requires communication. You don't negotiate with somebody by yelling at them and jumping up and down and threatening them and, and, and hitting them about the head with a uh, rolled up newspaper or a stick or whatever. That's not, neg- that's not communicating. So first we have to communicate, which means we both have to give and take and we both have to speak the same language. And no, communicating with a dog is not whispering. It's not ESP. It's not only for special people. Any of us can do it. It's an easy language to learn. We recognize most of it. We just have to put it into place. So the first step is communication. And then the second step in negotiation is I have something you want. You have something I want. It's in both of our interests to meet both of those sets of wants or needs. So dogs, we are really lucky with, Um, I don't have any experience with elephants or um, tigers or lions, Um, you know, so I don't know what they want, but we're lucky because dogs are what we call affiliative and gregarious. They like being in groups, And they like associating with human beings. So I've already got something we can feed off of each other with. I can give you attention. You can give me attention. We can both have a nice, warm, fuzzy feeling. And that's a great place to start our conversation. Um, I can provide food. I can provide treats. I can provide toys. I can provide that. So again, that social contact. So by looking at the things that a dog wants and needs, I can put it in a situation. Uh, you know, we, we can place ourselves in a situation where we can provide what they need. And in return, all we ask from them is to trust us, to communicate with us. And, um, we can both have a rewarding interaction. And by doing that, you know, I listen, like I it's, I, I run into these people sadly all the time that they go, Oh, yeah, I deal with aggressive dogs all the time. See the scars?
2: Mm. Okay. <laughs> I'm not
0: impressed. I've been bitten, and every time I've been bitten, it's my fault. I
2: and it screwed sucks. up.
0: Every time I've been bitten, except for one during Hurricane Katrina where a volunteer got in the way and I took the bite instead of letting the dog bite them. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Long story. (laughs) Ify dog. If they had followed my directions, it wouldn't have happened, but I could protect myself or I could protect the volunteer who didn't belong there in the first place. And Mm -hmm. um, I wound up taking the bite. And, Hopefully that was a
1: lesson learned for the volunteer at least. Yeah,
0: especially when I kicked them and while I'm holding the dog, I kicked them in the middle of the chest and they flew across the room. And I told them if I ever saw them in New Orleans again, I was going to personally drown them in Lake Pontchartrain. <laughs> um, and <laughs> That's they the never came coming back. After you. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was kind of wild and woolly there. And it was just us and <laughs> the military. And, you know, I'm sure lots of things happened that never <laughs> weren't, by, that weren't by the book. <laughs> um, but in any case, um, you know, it's I, I, I preach to the police officers, and, and being an old police officer myself, I understand the mindset. But when we're dealing with the dogs, it's negotiation, not domination. Yes. Dominance throw all that crap out, please.
1: That's not gonna um, work. Yeah, and that's a whole other a
0: conversation. Mm-hmm. But we want to negotiate, not dictate. So even when we're working as trainers or whatever with a dog that has problems, we can usually find common ground so that we can conduct a negotiation so that even for a short period, our relationship is based on mutual trust. I'm not, if I'm talking to the dog, I'm not going to hurt you and you don't hurt me. I'm not going to let you drive me away. I'm going to continue with what I'm doing as long as your reactions stay within certain bounds. But if your reactions stay within those bounds, I'm going to give to you. I am going to help you meet your needs and desires. And like I said, in almost 60 dogs that have, have done horrible things to people, um, there were two of them that i refused to even uh deal with because those were the jeffrey dahmers Mm. everybody else and it doesn't happen it's not quick i mean i may sit literally in front of a kennel with my back to the fence on the floor for an hour while the dog Mm -hmm. is going stupid until Mm -hmm. i finally get that one break where i can start to make the connection and once I start, and like I say, it's, it's really a rush to, to, for both of us to get that connection. Here you have a dog that has some real problems and whose needs have not been met. And, you know, it's very rewarding for the dog to be able to go, oh, okay, I can trust you. I can interact with you. I don't have to lose my mind anymore. Can you scratch right here?
2: <laughs> and,
0: and that's that's a wonderful feeling. Um, you know, it would be great if we could trans, you know, magically transfer that so the dog would do that with everybody. Sadly, a lot of these dogs are way too damaged, but at least, and and you know, it sounds strange, but that's why there have been times where I've said, okay the dog and I are getting along. We're doing fine. Based on my experience in training, I'll actually sit down with the dog and at least give them the sedation if they're going to be destroyed right there so that no matter how bad their life has been, their last few moments are with somebody that they at least for a moment can trust and can have a connection with. But That's wonderful. Like I said, the bottom line is negotiate, learn. To, you, you can read, you can look at a zillion and 52, um, videos on YouTube or whatever of dog, of dog interactions and dogs interacting with humans and bites, learn the signals. And even if you feel silly, try to use those signals to connect with the dog, and build that level of trust. Um, you know, I've, I, again, I've worked with plenty of dogs that have had serious problems. And, um, you know, it's sometimes it's hard to make the transition and that's why I, I, when people have serious problems, I don't recommend boot camps where you send the dog away and then get it back because if as a trainer, if I haven't taught you what to do, it doesn't matter whether I can handle the dog. That's not the issue at hand. But again, use that those skills and that language to negotiate with the dog.
1: Well, and I I like that you're mentioning everything about what to do for the dog and what the dog wants and kind of what the dog needs as far as communication goes. And and to piggyback off of that, I like to think about what they don't want as well. You know, we talked earlier about eliminating threats and having purpose behind these aggressive tendencies, the, the warning bites to give the dog space as humans we can very easily communicate what consent means i don't want you touching me i don't want you in my space yet when we look at another species like a dog we go into their space whether they want it or not that dog doesn't want to be manipulated but we're going to manipulate them because Mm -hmm. it's it's us first so if, if everyone can kind of take a step back and say would I like it if someone came into my space and just told me that they were going to touch me whether I liked it or not, or they were going to manipulate me whether I liked it or not? You know, how would you feel about that? And and not that we want to anthropomorphize, but to put a human emotion on it so that humans can understand, perhaps from the dog's perspective, what they also don't want potentially and how we're kind of abusing our privilege as humans to just kind of take over that space whether they want us to or not.
0: Yeah, and, and learning to recognize the signals that the dogs use to tell us that, you know, learning to recognize those early communication steps, you know, you come towards the dog and the dog is feeling grumpy that day, you know, whether it's your dog or another dog and the dog looks at you and keeps looking away. It's talking to you. It's trying to tell you, I'm not really up for a cuddle today. Um, you know, the dog licking its lips or yawning or looking and seeing that the dog's pupils have gone from normal for the light to suddenly they're highly dilated that's a that's a physiological sign of a change in their emotional state they are becoming either fearful or excited or something is happening but If you're sitting there and the dog's just pupils are normal and you do something, that's one of the early signs. Tension. Is the dog's mouth open (laughs) like the, you know, the typical yellow lab or is it tight? Is Mm -hmm. it closed? Is it drawn tighter at the edges? Are you starting to see teeth? All of those things, are things that we need to learn to recognize and honor and say, okay, I don't know why, but right now you seem to have something going on where you're not comfortable. So the best thing I can do is change the situation. Uh, You know, if a dog is sitting, if one of my dogs is sitting over there and feeling uncomfortable and it's clear If I need to do something with the dog, then fine. I set myself up to bring the dog to me and to reinforce that positive response rather than violating their space and making them more uncomfortable.
1: Yeah, it's something I tell my kids all the time. You can either make this situation better or you can make this situation worse. But think about what you're going to do first and which direction that's going to take things.
0: Yeah, and I have to look back, you know, my parents were, (coughs) we had dogs growing up, but they were average dog owners. I mean, you know, for the time it's, you know, they, they weren't sophisticated dog owners, but even at that time growing up, if as a kid you got bitten by the neighborhood dog or whatever, the first thing your parents did was, all right, what'd you do what'd to you deserve do? that? <laughs>
1: That's right. Not, what'd oh you my do? God,
0: there's a dangerous dog. It's <laughs> what did you do? You yeah. did something. And I want to find out what it is because we're going to make sure you understand don't ever do that again or I'll kick your butt. Um, That's right. And, you know, so we need to, uh, to, in order to honor a dog's ability to make choices, which I think is very important, we need to recognize when they're trying to tell us what their choice is. And, you know, we there, there's an awful lot about the, you know, the force free and never aversive and whatever. Okay. Force free is great because you know, not forcing another organism to do something is really the, the crux of what should we should be doing with each other too.
2: Yeah. We should not.
0: And you know, people say, well, I'm going to show the dogs in charge. No, what you're going to show is that you're a bully.
2: Yes, exactly. And
0: what you don't realize is when, and I learned this through years as a police officer and it it applies out on the street as police, it it applies when we're dealing with dogs. There is always, and, and this was an old officer that told me, there's always somebody out there who's bigger, badder, or has less to lose than you do. Yes. So you cannot win fighting all the time. It, your mouth can do a lot more than your fists can do. Because if you, and, and, and if you look at some of the, the videos and current events in various situations, and I'm not picking on either group, but you can look and you can see that when one group starts to apply force To another group it's very common for the opposite group to apply force back and it works with individuals if I walked up to somebody and said Charlie look there's a warrant out for you we've been through this 14 times before come on let's get in the car more often Charlie would go all right, Officer Crosby, let's go. I got, In fact, if you can get me down before, literally, if you can get me down before noon, I can call my probation officer and he'll have me out for dinner. <laughs> Great. <laughs> but if I walked up to the same guy and bounced him, like uh, an episode of Chicago PD or something on mm-hmm. TV, he's gonna come off the wall, bent out of shape, justifiably, and he's That's gonna it. give force back. So when you we look at dogs, you get a 60 or 70 or hundred pound dog that's truly pissed off, he's going to kick your butt. Yep. You cannot dominate that dog because if it is either frightened enough or has an attitude where it feels like it has nothing left to lose, you're going to lose. So applying force, is just is just a way of bullying. Compliance does not mean cooperation. And, and again, it, from from my years as a policeman, if I say move it now or you're going to jail and the person walks off, okay, that's compliance, but they're not cooperating with me. They're acting because they recognize a consequence that they don't want to deal with.
1: That's right. So,
0: you know, if you're a dog, if you're one of these people who your dog doesn't sit fast enough, so you snatch the lead up and strangle them, it may comply, but that's not a partnership. That's not cooperation. That's compliance to avoid something painful or scary. So, you know, that's very important. Now, the I think we fail to delineate sometimes the difference between that and the fact that there are aversives in life, and we can go um, to great length to define, well, what's aversive to whom or whatever. Aversive is just something we don't like. So if my little uh, Jack Russell mix, um, Pete, who is a jerk, because he's (laughs) a Jack Russell, um, is, is out on a leash and uh, sees another dog that he decides he doesn't like, and starts barking and lunging at him. And I tell him, "Uh-uh, sit right here." Well, I'm not letting him do what he wants to, because he wants to go over and be a jerk. So that's technically aversive. Am I punishing him? No, I'm redirecting his behavior to something that is not quite what he wants, but is not is going to keep him out of trouble. If You know, if your child is running for the stove and the burners on, putting their hands up, you may yell, "Uh uh-uh, don't you do that, get back here, you're going to burn yourself. And that may be aversive to the child because mommy just yelled at him, but you really don't feel like a trip to the emergency room.
1: Yeah. That's a harder way to learn. That's a much more aversive way to learn by putting your hand on.
0: Yeah. Instead of necessarily worrying about, is this aversive? Let's look at it and say, okay, am I communicating? Am I trying to guide the animal into something that we can agree upon? Or am I being a bully? Um, and to some extent, if I don't let you chase cars and you want to, yeah, that may be unpleasant for you, but it's because I don't want you flattened by the Buick down the street. And so I'm going to be knowingly somewhat aversive, but I, I love the, the, the thing that um, IABC and CCPDT and a lot of organizations have come with is we use the least invasive, minimally aversive technique, uh, especially when it comes to save, making life-saving decisions with the dog. Mm-hmm. We're going to be the least invasive, so we're just like a doctor. If I can, if I can give you antibiotics or do open abdominal surgery, I'm going to try the antibiotics first. <laughs> yes because there's less of a chance of it going sideways and it's going to be less unpleasant for you uh, and minimally aversive, well, I may not let you get away with everything forever, but I'm going to make the alternative as acceptable and cooperative with you as possible so that we can avoid, we, we can avoid unnecessary Um, bad situations and we can avoid me being a bully because you know the the, those old ways um, we've changed and again as we were talking before we started recording years ago when I started I actually used electronic collars Mm -hmm. until I learned better because I learned the science and I learned to put myself in the dog's shoes and um, the last few years that I used him in competition, I did not use the impulses at all. What I actually used, and I still think there are, uh, if you could remove the shock part of it, I conditioned my dogs so that if they did something, you know, I blew the whistle and they sat 500 yards away, I could hit the button for the tone only
2: mm-hmm. that
0: I had conditioned as a secondary reinforcer. So I was able to reach out four or 500 yards and go, good dog. Yes. It was like a really long range clicker. Um, so, you know, the, th- the thing is we, we, we need to work on understand. If we understand the behaviors and we understand the welfare and we understand the needs, then we can use that positioning to avoid being bullies to avoid beating up on our dogs and to 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 meet their needs and to develop that that partnership that um to me is the 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 essence of why dog we and dogs have been hanging out for forty thousand years Um, we not only they're not only useful for instance as hunter gatherers and finding prey or something But we haven't done that for a long time and we still Mm -hmm. keep them around and they still tolerate us. So there's that companionship that's, that's built up that, um, we need to honor and try to build on
1: the mutual part to a mutual relationship. Yep. Yeah.
0: And and don't violate that trust.
1: Absolutely. For sure. And I, I think that, um, starting with some of the mistakes that we make with dogs can really help us better understand why some of these things happen why what is the purpose behind these bites that occur these attacks that occur fatal or non-fatal but it gives us so much more information when we try to understand it from the dog's perspective and really try to use communication tools that their understanding of as well that don't really um hinder that trust that don't You know, that isn't forceful to where we're we're pushing them in a position that they don't necessarily want to be in, but rather cultivating that mutualistic, beneficial relationship both ways between dog and human.
0: Yeah. I think that if one of the ways we could reduce dog bites over this spectrum is simply to pay attention and to understand the communication that's, that should be going back and forth because, and, and just the other day I made a, I responded, you know, what, what's the old thing? Oh yeah. Let me, let me do something instructive. Let me argue with somebody on the internet. Um, <laughs> but you know, they were saying that, you know, the old thing about, well, the dog just snapped.
1: Yes. No, I hate that the line. dog
0: didn't just snap something happened well the dog didn't give any warning yeah i'll on a few cases every once in a while there are dogs that for instance have been punished for giving warning you know mm-hmm. the old thing Punishing don't the punish growl. the growl that's right you know they have been punished for warning and so it happens once in a while but typically no the dog is trying to warn you and you were just either unknowledgeable not paying attention or deliberately blowing it off Mm -hmm. when the dog tried to talk to you before the bite Um, there's a great video online uh, and you can find it if you look Uh, a few years back there in in Denver at the TV station there they had a um, and I don't know where she is now Uh, they had an anchor by the name of Kyle Dwyer
1: Ah, yes
0: and <clears throat> the setup for the situation was the day before this large uh, large dog at Dogo, Argentina,
2: mm-hmm. had
0: gotten out on the ice, and the fireman had gone out and saved him from falling through the ice and so forth. Great story. You know, the dog was safe. They had The next morning, Kyle had the, the owner and the dog with her on the set. Great human interest story. Everything is wonderful. And um, suddenly the dog bites her right in the face. Well, if you go through that video, especially if you slow it down, what you see is a dog that number one is already anxious. You've got a dog that's never been in a TV studio. And if you've ever been in front of the camera, you know that there's a lot of crap going on just out of sight. There's big cameras, there's hot lights, there's noise, there's wires, there's people running around with headsets. It's chaotic off, off that little piece that you're seeing. Um, so the dog's already anxious. The dog is letting her pet, but she decides to do for good TV, give the dog a kiss at the end of the interview. And you watch the video and especially I've slowed it down for students. The dog leans back. He looks away. He's already licked a couple of times. He bares his teeth and then he engages as she continues. Now, it's over a short period of time. I really believe that sometimes dog thinks, dogs think we're their slow relatives
1: <laughs> because
0: they communicate very quickly back and forth. Yes. Slow down some videos of dogs interacting and watch the signals going back and forth. It's amazing. So I think they think we're a little slow. But, <laughs> um and, and it was cool because she's a dog person and, and she recognized she would not cooperate with any action against the dog because she recognized she bought and paid for that. Yes. That she should have seen those signals. The owner should have probably also seen the dog getting... Because you could see the dog tensing and went through a lot of those signals that, again, if you look at either toured Rugos's book or um, uh, Dr. Kendall Shepherd over in uh, the UK, who's a friend, she has something called the ladder of aggression. Yes. And it goes through some of the things that you see the escalation of discomfort covering. Um, and people misunderstand it. It doesn't mean you necessarily hit all the rungs of the ladder. You may hit one and two and five and nine depending on the dog. But if you look at that video and again, it's up, it's up online. You can see, especially as you slow it down, the dog going through the communication repertoire saying I'm uncomfortable. I'm not happy here and you're violating my space and you're ignoring what I'm saying. And so you're going to get bit. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, if we just, taught people to pay more attention and to understand those signals and then to understand that if you're getting the signals figure out why your dog is uncomfortable and try to fix the problem instead of um overreacting or continuing with what you're doing think about it just like you'd think about if somebody was um making you uncomfortable i mean today we see people are finally coming up where, um, back in, if you watch something like mad men or whatever on TV, you've got men leaning over secretaries and acting inappropriate and invading women's spaces and so forth. And at that time in that place, those women were unable to express their discomfort. Now we've learned, well, dogs, you know, not, I'm not equating women and dogs, but what I'm saying is that as organisms, As sentient beings, dogs will give us feedback and will communicate to us. And you're right. We, we, we probably, in fact, it's much better not to be forcing our, our dogs to, to, to suffer needlessly but instead let's build that, that relationship and that communication. And if we just pay attention to that, like I said, even the most serious fatal attacks, if people were paying attention, at least some of those would be avoidable. Uh, and, and as we go down, you know, there's about four and a half million people a year in the U S bitten every year. And, um, you know, very few of those need hospitalization but if out of those four and a half million people we got even a million people to start pulling their head out of the sand and and paying attention that's a million people and a million dogs that we could avoid um you know having those negative situations and in a lot of cases those are dogs that would not be wind up wind up being either surrendered to shelters or given up on or destroyed because their humans were just too stupid to pay attention.
1: Yeah, the human factor is really what is the deciding factor in what a dog feels the need to do uh, to defend themselves or to communicate with us.
0: Absolutely. Um, you know, it's we 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 can't just blunder through life like a like a bull in a china shop <laughs> with whether it's whether it's dogs or now you know I'm not particularly a cat person but cat people know that cats have specific behaviors that they perceive as being threatening Mm -hmm. um i know you know having worked in the animal control world that you know lots of other animals have have different responses to different kinds of behaviors people who have um who who have companions that are parrots birds have an entirely different way of interpreting the world. And uh, it's our responsibility to recognize those perceptions and to, you know, a, whether it's a bird or a dog, they can only act like a bird or a dog. We're the ones that have the option of, of learning of learning their um, perceptions.
1: That's right. It's up to us. We have that ability. We have that brain capacity. And so it's, it's our responsibility to do so for sure Mm -hmm. yeah oh gosh jim this has been awesome i feel like this is chock full of such fantastic information i could keep you here all day (laughs) i'm definitely going to pop down and visit you in florida and come check out what you do
0: for sure yeah it's it unfortunately it's one of those things that it's either all or nothing uh and you know and right now i'm spending a lot of time sitting right here (laughs) writing my dissertation and you know inputting data into to tables and and analyzing things and so forth. but it's um,
1: an important piece of work.
0: yeah and and that's the other thing it's and it's it's I've always found it kind of interesting. you know I've had I've had a couple of people at various times talk about we should do a TV show about what you do. Mm-hmm. Well, it would be a really bad TV show. <laughs> <laughs> because if I say I've got a, i have got I mean, if I'm, if I'm investigating a human ca- a fatality case, yeah, there's a lot of that 48 hours kind of looking around and interviewing people and all that crap. But the actual interaction with the dog, if everything goes well, it's really boring. Because if everything goes well, um, you know, the dog may be a, a, a pain to begin with. But by the time I've put a lead on them and, got, and getting hands on them, we've developed a bond of trust, again, at least for a short period of time. And when I'm doing an evaluation, I'm not provoking a bite. All I want to see is those, you know, the, those, those moments when they tense or they look funny or they give you that very first warning that a lot of people won't even pick up on until you show it to them on video later so even if i've got a dog that's ripped somebody to pieces the actual evaluation is not good tv yeah it's really boring and um unlike unlike some shows that are out there um and there are several of them i'm not going to provoke a dog just to uh just to create a good TV moment. So once you know people have figured out that most of what I do is really boring, um, I'm just as happy not to be a TV star. <laughs> yeah, you you don't you just there's nothing. Again, if everything goes well, nothing happens.
1: Yes, absolutely, and it's not I, our job to make it worse. It's our job to make yeah. it better. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I find out what happened. I get information from the dog. I may well be there with a veterinarian if the dog's put down uh, doing a necropsy to see if there's something organic that caused the problem. I may be standing next to a medical examiner, um, going through an autopsy, documenting wounds and, and assisting with suggestions on where to collect DNA evidence from, measuring bite marks, all of the stuff, the technical stuff we do. But if everything's done right, that's all pretty boring. (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, for the non-boring parts, for all the fun stuff that you have out there that people can learn from your, your plethora of experience, what's the best way to keep up with um, what you've got coming up and how people can continue learning from you?
0: Um, well, I do Google. So if you Google Jim Crosby dog, all kinds of crap comes up. <laughs> um, um, I, I am out on Twitter at, at the dog guy, Jim. Um, uh, I do have a presence on Facebook, but I rarely check it because I think that that's probably the center of evil in the universe.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Just kidding, Elon or or, or, or Mark exactly. or whoever it is yeah. that runs that. Yeah, but um, um, keep an eye out. I you know when we've got something coming up, I I, I really have to get back to. Uh, Having a website out there that's that's more um, present. Um, if anybody's looking to contact me, especially if they have a serious or a fatal bite and they want some input, and that whether it's uh, family members of somebody that's been bitten or attorneys or uh, especially if animal control or law enforcement are looking, they can email me, and the easy it's it's easy. It's canine aggression all spelled out at gmail.com. So. The word canine, the word aggression, no spaces or anything, canineaggression at gmail.com uh, is, the, is probably the easiest way to contact me. Um, and, or you could you could actually email me at jimcrosbygator at ufl.edu.
1: Unless you're a Seminoles um, fan, right?
2: <laughs> well,
0: yeah, I've got two daughters that graduated from Florida and then i got my master's and finishing my doctorate so yeah i guess that even though i did undergraduate work at duke that i really kind of qualify as a gator these days so i
1: think it's official (laughs) well thank you so much jim I, i appreciate your time this has been very enlightening and fascinating and i think uh a lot of people listening will have some information to go forward when making decisions about dogs that are that are unfortunately put in some of these these precarious positions so Thanks so much. And I'm going to put all of the links that you talked about as well as some notes in the show notes too about some of the other people that you've mentioned too that people can kind of Google or follow the links that are in the description to learn more um, about bites and dog attacks.
0: And 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 what I'll do too is I have a couple of things that are written out there that I'll send you some links or-, or Perfect. Uh, places where you can link. There's a- um, uh, a dog bite investigative protocol that i put together
1: oh excellent yeah um, that'd be very helpful
0: with questions and so forth and um there's a written document on uh application of the um of the dunbar scale to bite investigations
1: oh perfect uh, so I'll, s-
0: I'll i'll send you a few links to some stuff and you, you feel free to put that in the show notes and people can can click on through and uh find that stuff excellent uh, there's also um, there's also a book that I wrote two chapters on. It's called Dog Bites: A Multidisciplinary Approach. It's um, that book. Ah, yes. Uh, it's edited by Dr. Daniel Mills and Dr. Carrie Westgarth over in the UK. Um, it is available on Amazon. Uh, there's, I've got two chapters in there: one on investigating bites and one on uh, evaluating bite mark evidence. So you know, it's it's a little expensive, but unfortunately, I don't get anything from it. But <laughs> it's still a resource out there. So maybe if you've got two or three friends that want to get together and you know, Pass each chip 10, ten or fifteen bucks, they can get it uh and um if anybody's working in the animal control world or the shelter world and dealing with bites try and get your agency to buy it for you because um there's my stuff and there's uh, it's kind of eurocentric because it comes out of the uk but there's a lot of good information in there
1: that's a good valuable resource to have for sure awesome yep thanks so much jim
0: sure thanks Eric. appreciate you
2: having me it's been fun